Moses did and worshiped in prayers and bowed to them. But look at verse 9 with me. After he's gestured this great humility before God, and most likely he's still on his face before the Lord, he says, if I have found favor in your sight, if you're going to contend to give me grace, O Lord, he's saying, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are obstinate. And pardon our iniquities and our sins and take us as your own possession. Well, this is about the fourth time, I think I've counted, chapter 32, verse 11, verse 31 of that, 33, 12, and here, where Moses is interceded on behalf of the nation in such a dramatic way. Notice the words, pardon our iniquity and our sin. Moses knows that they have rejected God. And there he is there to mediate and ask for God's forgiveness for this nation. But it's interesting, instead of dressing God as Yahweh, Moses chooses the name Adoniah here. He, he's been using other names of God, God Almighty and so forth. But here, all of a sudden, he changes and uses the name Adoniah. And this term, Adoniah, focuses on the rule and authority of God. And so, in a sense, here, Moses say, Now, if we found favor in your sight, O Adoniah, ruler, authority, the one who controls all things, if we have found favor, notice that. So clearly, Moses was overcome by the divine graciousness of God, and it causes him to respond because of that loving kindness. Isn't that amazing? When you see the grace of God, you're... You're drawn to his sovereignty, aren't you? Now, one thing that's clear here is Moses is not going anywhere unless the Lord comes with him. Isn't that precious? Notice in the verse 9, he is pleading in this prayer, let the Lord go among our midst. We, we have to have your presence. We can't just have your blessing like, well, go, good luck, have a good time. <laughs> You've got to be with us, Lord. I get scared of doing anything without the Lord. Anybody been out there ahead of him too many times? It's really lonely out there. Scary. You end up making dumb decisions. You want the Lord with you. And Moses knows this. Notice he uses words like this. Pardon. Notice that in the text. It carries the idea of forgiveness. But there's more to it. It points to the remission. Not just pardon this. Forgive it and take it away. Take away our sins. Take away the due penalty of them. Don't give us what we deserve. Moses is crying out on behalf of the nation. And he doesn't just mix words, does he? Notice he uses our iniquity and our sin. That's the exact words God used in chapter 32 of what they were doing down the hill when the last time he was up there. He goes, your people are engaged in iniquity and sin down there. And so he comes back and he says, oh God, forgive us of our iniquity and sin. Notice he does not mix words. Too often when we, when we repent, we somehow, oh Lord, I shouldn't have done that, but you put this person in my life and I wouldn't have done it if you wouldn't have put him there. They <laughs> just mix words. You know, you just, there's no confession. That's not repentance. It's a blame shift. Our iniquities and our sins, God Blot them out, pardon them, take away the penalty of them. Don't give us what we deserve, and you've got to come with us. What a great intercessor, isn't he? Finally, notice Moses, Moses pleads for God to take him and the nation as his own possession. 
make us your inheritance. Don't, we don't like, want you just to go with us, but we want you to be our God. We want, to, you, we want you to possess us, be in the center of us. We want to be your people. Isn't that amazing? Make us your family. Don't abandon us, God. We won't survive without you. What a good way to pray. What if we prayed that way? God, don't leave me. And we know, we go, oh, pastor, come on. We have verses that says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But, but what it does is it causes us to be dependent and, and stop, it causes us to stop thinking independently of everything we do. We get so busy in life and job and family and all the things we're going and we make decisions and we don't even ask the God who knows all things, right? And so when we say, God, don't leave me, help me, we're, we're making ourselves dependent upon him. Same language is used of the church Though we believe that God is going to make two people one group someday, um, there are some similarities that we see. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says this. He says, but you are a chosen race. You're a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Exactly what Moses was asking. And, and here, Peter says, this is how God looks at the church. And he goes on to say that, so that you proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then this, for you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Hello, people of God. I mean, that's what we are, right? Because of the great work of God. And you can just see the heart of Moses here. Lord, go with us. Pardon our sins. Don't give us what we deserve. They're, they're truly iniquity that's, that's wicked and sinful. What we've done, don't... Remove the debt of that and make us your possession. Take us. Second thought this morning, or this evening, God graciously responds to the mediator with the gift of forgiveness and warnings for the nation. So God graciously responds here. And he gives the gift of forgiveness. You'll see this here. And, and, but also he's going to give warnings to this nation. And some of this section can seem redundant of what we've already studied, but... But in, in light of this intercessory prayer of forgiveness, we need to see that the Lord once again responds graciously and renews his covenant with this obstinate, sinful people. Look at verse 10 with me. Then God said, behold, I'm going to make a covenant. Before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations and all the people among whom you live will see the workings of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform, perform for you. Now, don't miss the faithfulness in this in God. You have this obstinate people, a people that just couldn't wait 40 days. I think now we have a hard time waiting 40 minutes for God to answer something. But they can't wait 40 days for Moses to get off. And instead, they just begin to worship uh, a golden bull calf. They reject God. They make a graven image. They have another God before them. They replace God. And so don't miss the faithfulness of God here. Now, Moses is that type of Christ. He's mediating on behalf of the nation. But here the Lord declares that through Moses, the covenant mediator, he's going to renew this covenant again with them. And God's declaring, this is the role. I'm going to renew this. Notice at the beginning he says, of that verse, he says, I'm, I'm going to make a covenant. Before your people, I will perform miracles. 
Now, before, on chapter 32, you remember he said, your people are down there doing this. But here he uses that phrase again, and I want to make some clarity here. I don't think this is a rejection of, of his people and saying, these are yours, not mine. But what he's affirming here is that Moses is the leader and he is the mediator. Remember, he's a type of Christ, and so God is affirming that with Moses. And notice also that God promises to do unprecedented things. I mean, unprecedented things here in Acts that no nation's ever seen before. I've just, I just finished reading Joshua in my own personal reading. What a fun read. I mean, he says, I'm going to be like a hornet to the nations. And anybody who's ever messed around with hornets, you run when they come. I mean, you know, I was a kid firing a baseball up at a hornet's nest, and pretty soon everybody's running for the hills, you know. And God becomes that. These powerful nations that are greater than them um, become so fearful as the nation starts to approach them. There's no physical reason why. They're a greater nation. They have more uh, war vehicles and armed forces and all of that. And, and here's this little nation living in tents, you know, with, with not much armor, not much anything. And they, they begin to, to tremble in front of the nation of Israel. And God says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do unprecedented things here. There will be nothing parallel that you can, you can show this to uh, that I'm going to do. I will, I will take the hearts of your enemies and I will melt them. And he does that time and time again. You know, there's a beautiful stretch here beginning shortly after this time where when you study the nation of Israel and it goes all the way to the death of Joshua and the elders and they, are, uh, they walk with the Lord. There's a few stumbles in there with Achan and a few things in there like that. But they walk with the Lord for many, many years. And God does amazing things. And here he promises that this will happen. Look at verse 11. Be sure to observe all that I have commanded you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorites before you, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Prezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And notice he gives two commands in this verse. He says, first obey me and then watch what I'm going to do. I thought about that. When we don't obey God, we don't get to see what he's going to do often. Because when you don't obey, you become selfish and you want to do things your way. And so you're oblivious to what God is doing at times. Because if it doesn't work out the way and the timing that you want, because you didn't obey, you miss what God is doing, right? But he says, I want you to obey and watch. That's what verse 11 says. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37 through 38, he kind of sums this up again. He says, because I loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. He loved Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so um, that caused God in his sovereign plan to choose the descendants after them. And then the Bible says this in Deuteronomy 4, it says, and he personally brought you out of Egypt and gave his great power to you driving out from you the nations greater and mightier than you to bring you and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Joshua told him, he says, God brought you into land that was not yours. He gave you houses to live in you did not build. He gave you vineyards that he grew that you did not plant. And he goes on and on. Worship the Lord your God. Do not forsake him. And this is what God is promising to do. And what's, I think what's so fascinating is you see this long-suffering God, right, that we, we heard him speak of himself to Moses. He knows what this nation is going to do, and yet he commits this covenant to them. 
He is truly a God who is beyond our understanding of loving kindness. Look at verse 12 with me. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. All who enter into the covenant here with the Lord are not to compromise their allegiance. That's what he's saying here. Don't compromise your allegiance with these other nations, right? Be separate from the world, right? He uses the word snare. It's a term used of those who were fowlers, right? Those who uh, caught eagles and, and uh, hawks and stuff. They use a little snare and they tie a little mouse in there or something that comes down and it grabs them. And he says, look, there'll be a snare to you if you engage with other nations. And, and this is so true today, isn't it? So what we warn ourselves up, right? We are in the world, but we're not of it. And, and the Bible constantly tells us not to be unequally yoked in the world and, and to be lights in this world, but not be taken away from it. And so often we see people who have claimed to know Jesus, but they've, they've changed their allegiance at some level, or at least they've tried to serve two masters, right? Well, I, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, but, but I want to have fun, and I want to do this, and, and I, and I want to be married, or I want this or that, or whatever it may be. And compromise comes. And there goes joy. And there goes a desire for the Lord. And the world starts robbing the, the, that individual of their love for the Lord. And so we see this. This is, this is not just for Israel. This teaches us, don't be ensnared by the things of the world. Don't, don't chase the lust of the eyes, right? And the pride of life, right? Those things that the Bible reminds us of. Look at verse 13. But rather... You are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. Well, in Israel's day, these, these items were going to be an ongoing source of contentment or enticement in one way. Notice the Bible says to destroy them. Remember when he told them to build an altar, he says use uncut stones. They just took stones right out of the river. They didn't shape them and make them really pretty and because God knew they'd start worshiping the altar instead of worshiping the God the altar was for. So that's what people do. Build a big old church, and pretty soon they're worshiping the building, not the God who was ahead of it. It's always a danger for us. We like shiny things, and we're like a bass that'll go after it. He says, no, you're going to have these uncut stones. But, but he says, you're going to get to their sacred pillar, their sacred stone, their carved altars. You're going to see this. You are to destroy those things because they're going to entice your people away. Because God's not going to do something in your timing, and so you're going to turn to that. So it happens today. God doesn't act the way we want him to act, and pretty soon we venture out without him. The ashram is a, was a tree or a pole. They would use trees and poles, and they would decorate these things, and they would worship them, and they were associated to the altars of Baal. We'll see that later when that gets introduced to the nation. But Astra her, herself was supposed to be a goddess of Baal, and she was widely worshipped as the mother god of Baal, and, and they worshipped her for fertility and so forth. And here God is warning them, do not be a part of that, in fact, destroy that. Get rid of it. You know, I'm not a record-burning guy, but every once in a while you go to our house and say, what's in here that doesn't really please God? You know, what's on the DVR? Do we still have a DVR? Um, what's on that? I mean, what, what, do we, what do we have that 
is really not of God. You know, sometimes we've got to go through and say, Lord, this isn't of you. Cleanse my mind of these things and my desire for things of the world. Help me love you. You know, that's an ongoing battle. And none of us have reached that pinnacle of where we go, yeah, nothing affects me. Every one of us have areas of weakness of in our flesh. And remember that the, Peter said that the flesh wars against our souls. And so God knows us how gracious of him to say, hey, these things are not of me. Remove them. They're a trap. They're a snare. Verse 14. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. <laughs> this verse contains the reason to avoid such false worship, right? There is only one true God who has claimed Israel as his own possession. And notice this divine jealousy that he talks about here. I brought this up a few weeks ago, and only God can have the attribute of jealousy, right? We cannot. <laughs> we will abuse it. We can't handle that. But God does have divine jealousy. And what that Hebrew word means here is this is God's desire to keep his relationship between him and his people pure. That's what he's jealous for. And when we allow the impurities of the world to get between us and God, there's, there seemingly feels, at least on our side, a broken fellowship, and there's an impurity there. And so God divinely wants that relationship pure. I mean, think about that between a husband and wife. God wants purity in a husband and wife. Nothing in between. Don't let some other person in between that relationship. I want that relationship pure. It reflects Christ in the church. So God's relationship with is jealous of that pure relationship. He wants no other gods before us. He wants no graven images, anything that would rob us of loving him and following him. And that's good for us. This is not a mean God in any way. This is a gracious God who says, that's going to be bad for you. And so we listen to him. You can hear him encouraging this nation. He is after, after exclusivity with this nation. Nothing or no one should interfere in their loyalty to the Lord. He knows what will come with it. I know what a foreign thing this would have been. You get to the Canaanites and the Hittites and Preservites and all the ites. They're all polytheistic, right? They've got multiple gods. And all with that comes immorality. It's all tied to that. When you study all these nations that God wipes out, I mean, you get in Joshua, and if you've got a queasy stomach, you can read through that, and you go, oh, man, there went men, women, and children. That, those nations were steeped in immorality. Everything about them was full of immorality. Every god they worshipped was based in immorality. And God says, I don't want my people to have anything to do with that. I want to keep a pure, exclusive relationship with them. There's many gods today that, taint our thinking but god wants you he, he saved you he knew you from the foundations of the world so god hates mixed worship and compromise right it wasn't long after the death of joshua and the elders and they began to worship baal or they'd go to temple in the morning and worship baal after temple how could they get there well you just try everything you know well if god's not gonna answer my prayers maybe this one will People do that all the time in the day. They bounce around different religions. They come in here. Well, what do you guys believe? And, you know, what do you got for me? Got something better than over here? No, no. We got a God. We know him through Jesus Christ. We believe in his word. We preach it verse by verse. We got nothing else. That's who we are. 
We're saved by the grace of God, period. We don't need to see him. We believe his word. That's not popular today. Verse 15 and 16 goes on. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with this inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you might take some of his daughters or sons, and, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. <laughs> well, Hebrew terms here describe the engaging of irregular sexual relationships, right? He's, this is where it goes. When we get outside of the will of God, it's always sinful. Is that a right statement to make? It just is, right? Because if we're not in the will of God, we're in our flesh. And we know where that can lead us. And he's warning them because he knows these nations. A lot of people have a hard time with the book of Joshua that God kills men, women, and children. Well, first of all, he knows all that are his. He can rightly judge anyone, right? He has the right to do that. It's all his creations. He knows the hearts of all men. He has the right to do that. He's never wrong in that. And it's amazing that he doesn't judge us all. But he knows the hearts of these people. He knows how wicked they are. And you can see just in 15 and 16, just where the, the strong Hebrew terms that are here, the play the harlot, prostitution. All of this is, is, is ugly, isn't it? I mean, he's warning, look, if an Israelite woman marries a Canaanite man, guess what's going to happen? Well, she's going to go and live with that family, and she's going to be in that pagan environment. And this would constitute a great danger to the community of Israel because they're going to let those in. King Solomon said one of the worst things he ever did with his 400 wives, they brought in the gods with them. Hey, marry outside of the will of God? Mm. Pay the price. And there's some of you that have tried to help our young ladies realize that. And you certainly are forgiven. Um, but you know the pain of that. You know the pain of being outside the will of God. And, and again, God is gracious and merciful and shows you kindness and gives you a church that you can worship in. And, but there are great dangers come with intertwining with the world. Look at verse seven, 17, excuse me. You shall not make for yourself no molten gods. Literally, the word there means a cast of metal. <laughs> well, that's exactly what they had done. That golden calf didn't just pop out of the fire. They had to make that, that cast and take all those earrings and ornaments that they had and melt those down. And so isn't it interesting that he focuses on that one particular Thing there. God knows that idolistic worship will misrepresent him, and idolistic worship is an abomination to God. And we have to watch that. Where are the idols? And, and again, it's really easy to go, well, boy, I'm going to stop going to see that movie. Well, you got to go a little farther than that, because <laughs> it's a hard issue, <laughs> Right? And so the churches for many years had tried, we've tried to stamp out things like, well, we don't, you know, we don't go with girls who chew or however that saying goes, I always say. <laughs> but that doesn't eradicate it, right? You can, you can try to clean this mess up on the outside all you want, but if the heart is still wicked, right? If the heart still has desires that are not of God, guess what the, the body is going to do in time? It's going to follow it. And so... 
really what Jesus, excuse me, what God is doing here is he's showing this comes from your heart. You're going to leave the people that I have chosen and marry outside of that. That's a heart issue. It's a rejection of the plan of God and it exposes the heart. And that's what we always, anytime we deal with sin, anytime you or I deal with our own sin or we're trying to help somebody else, if you don't get to the heart of the the matter, you're just going to end up dressing them really nice for the party. I mean, you, we've got to get in. We've got to peel back and say, why do I desire those things? Where is that coming from? Help me, Lord, see the root of that problem. And God knows that that's in his people. Third thought this evening. God renews the opportunity to live out the divine calling as his set-apart people. Remember, they, they have done despicable things to God, and he is the one who is renewing everything here. He is the one who's forgiving them and bringing them back in and reconfessing this covenant to them and, and, and bringing them close to him. And he is the one who's going to go with them here. So it's important to understand that this is God doing this. The nation would not have done this on their own and we wouldn't come to God on our own either. But after all the forgiveness and warnings were delivered by God, he now turns to some positive actions. Here's some things that, that I want you to devote yourself to that will help you. And many of these commands had been already laid down, but, but they are to be revealed in this covenant that, that, that was broken in this idolatry. And, and he wants Moses to go back down the hill and reveal these. Look at what he starts to do. Verse 18, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you shall eat of unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the appointed time on the month of Abed. For the month of Abed you came out of Egypt. So immediately he reminds them of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would later become what we'd call the Passover, right? The Passover and Unleavened Bread became one feast and one festival that they shared together. But God was desiring the nation to never forget that God brought them out of slavery. You know, for us, we're not Israel. And so we have to be careful with commands. But in an application form, God brought us out of slavery, didn't he? I mean, we were all slaves of sin, weren't we? All slaves... Under the, under the rule and reign of the one who works in the sons of disobedience. And so here he wants them to be reminded, don't forget what I did. This is good for you. That's why we talk about have testimonies and baptisms. And we share our testimony with each other. If you're going through membership here, one of the things we have you do is share your testimony with us. Well, how, what did God do? Tell us what God has done. Such a good thing, isn't it? When you sit down or have somebody over or you go out to lunch with somebody, ask them of their testimony. Talk about the testimonies of God. It'll encourage your heart and it'll help, you keep, you, it'll help keep you from sin. Look at verse 19 and 20. The first of offspring of every womb belongs to me. And all your male livestock, the first offering from the cattle and sheep, you shall redeem with a lamb the first offering from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. I'll get to that in a second. You shall redeem all the firstborns of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. What a statement. Remember, the final plague there in Egypt was the death of the firstborn, but God passed over because the blood protected them, the blood of the lamb protected them. See, he wants them to remember this. And the way you remember this is, give me your firstborn, grant them to me, honor me, worship me by dedicating your firstborn. And there's many reasons why this happened. Well, one of, the le- one of them was a lesson was to be taught to that firstborn who would have all the authority that the father has, and this would assure that generationally this would be taught to the next generation and to the next generation. 
So God wanted the firstborn child to be given to him, dedicated to the Lord. That one would become the one who oversaw all of the father's goods, all of the father's people, and he would share that. Now, certainly there's a Christological implication here as well, right? The Lord Jesus Christ is uh, called the firstborn of the father, right? Not created, but the one who has all things, first right to all things of God. And, and so there is a Christological application here. But notice in verse 20, he talks about the lamb's blood. This bring this, this was a temporary redemption. This holds off my wrath. And, and the whole donkey thing is a little difficult when you read it, but a donkey was an unclean animal. And he says, if you're not going to offer me the donkey, then kill it, kill it, right? Because everything needs to come to me. And you go, well, you know, how come he's so hard on the donkey? Well, what he's doing here is he's showing you the greatest offering to the least offering all should come to me. The lamb was a clean animal and would eventually represent Jesus Christ, right? You know, the final lamb, behold, the lamb of God who comes and takes away the world. It was the greatest sacrifice to hold off the wrath of God till Christ came. The donkey was probably the least of the sacrifices, the least of something you would give. It was a beast of burden. It had a practical reason, was important to the family, but it was the least. And so I think what God is doing here, he says, look, I want the firstborn of everything. The things that you think are valuable, like your lamb flock, and the things you think are just this donkey that nobody cares about, that's a hard, stiff-necked animal. I want it all. And that's what God wants from us. Notice he says at the end of verse 20, none shall appear before me empty-handed. When our, our first church that we had in Lake City, California, there was an older woman. She didn't have a lot. But I noticed every, every week she gave something. You know, and she was a widow. Her husband had died. And, and she was a precious lady. And I remember sitting down with her one day and we were talking. And, and I said, Diane, I notice you, you give so regularly. And she says, I don't have much. But I never want to come to God, come before God with his people and not give him something. This is a conviction she had. And she always gave of her heart. And, and here the Bible says, never, you should appear before me empty-handed. Come, bring something. Moses later in Deuteronomy 16, 17 highlights this. He says, every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessings of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So the worshiper was to express their gratitude with giving. Give back a portion to what God has given you. Some God entrusts some of you, and he gives more to, and others he says, I'm not going to give as much to you. He has that choice. He does it all right. The Bible says give. Give to the Lord. And, and, and this is the, he's reminding them. And why would he do this? Well, if you're selfish by nature and you can build a bull calf in 40 days because you don't think Moses is coming back, guess what you're going to do with the things you have? You're not going to give them to God. So it's a reminder that where your treasure is, there's your heart. So give, give of, of the Lord. And, you know, it's hard to give when times are tough. And some of you have gone through some difficult times financially, physically, all kinds of things. Keep giving. Give to the Lord. He will bless that. And it honors him as an act of worship. Look at 21, verse 21. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest you shall rest well the nation of israel was given two reasons to why they should keep the sabbath throughout the old testament number one was to remember that god was creator and he completed his work right so they're told early on to keep the sabbath because of that but in deuteronomy he tells them to keep the sabbath because god brought them out of egypt 
So he gives them two reasons, and he gives Israel this reason. Somewhere along the line, I think the church adopted some of these things. I know in the South, I was raised in, in the West, was very liberal, but even when I got here, I noticed things were different on Sundays. Um, and I think it's changed now, but um, it moved into this where you weren't able to do anything as, as a church. And, and yet, God said, look, this is for Israel. They're to be reminded that I'm creator. I think that's a good thing. They're to be reminded that I brought them out of Egypt, and the command was for the nation alone. But for us, um, quickly the church saw that God resurrected his son on the first day. And that became the day to honor God and gather as the church. And yet, here he knew if this nation began to not slow down and take some time to remember what God has done, they would fall apart. And I don't think that's changed. You know, it's busy. I've had so many men through the years say, Pastor, I want to come to church, but I work six days a week. And Sunday's the only day I have to get the lawns mowed and all the things I have to do, and I just can't come. And I go, well, you ever caught up with things? Well, no, I still got so much to do. And guess what? You're never going to catch up with them. Because God's not blessing your time. And so when we take time, you know, and someone says, wow, you know, Sunday mornings is from 9 to noon 15. It's long, you know. 168 hours in the week. <laughs> I mean, giving the Lord a few hours to set everything aside, set bills and, and business and all those things and come in and corporately worship with the Lord, it keeps us focused on what he has for us, right? You all know, every one of us know, when we get away from church and we get away from worship of the body of Christ, things go south, don't they? We need the body of Christ. We need to set time aside and, and, and if you have a conviction to take the whole day, I think, I think there's anything wrong with that. You shouldn't press that on somebody else. But I think the point here from a new covenant time is, man, God wants us to come together and to let things go for a moment so we can focus on him so you can go back to that with the right heart. I think so many people struggle in their businesses because they don't slow down and worship the Lord. So business becomes so dominant to them. And I know it's hard. It's difficult. Um, and yet, God wants this nation to remember him. If you forget the God, and your God, and what all he did, you'll be in trouble. Look at verse 22. You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and, and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Well, there's two feasts he wants them to remember. One is the Feast of uh, weeks, and the other is the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Weeks marked the seven weeks between Passover and the wheat harvest. And this is just a celebration, a provision of God. Take time to remember that God provides for you. And then the Feast of Ingathering marked the end of their agriculture year, which came in October. Here's how we mark it. Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's, it's a great time. Out west, um, most of the churches we were always involved, we just had harvest festivals. And, you know, and we had a lot of rural churches, and so it was a great time of celebrating and sharing the things that you had grown or what you've done and just just a, a little probably a little different feel at times because a lot of people were in agriculture and but for all of us we take time that's why we love the holiday of thanksgiving there's not a bunch of giving of gifts and all that stuff that get us all confused it's a time to be thankful and you you enjoy food that god had provided for you and they were to remember this. And you think about a people, a people, whether it's a nation of Israel or the church, is not thankful for the provisions God gives, you will be in trouble quickly. Because self-centeredness will lead you away. Look at verse 23. 
three times a year when all your males are to appear before me, before the Lord God, the God of Israel. I've always said when you get the men, you'll most likely get the rest of the family. It's one of the problems in today's church. Men have not taken the leadership that they have. Spiritual male leadership has always been a priority to God. He has given them a headship. They reflect his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not an abusive headship, but it's a headship that points to God. And, and we have a responsibility, men, to lead our families. We can't save our families. We can't even sanctify our families. But we can be leaders. And so here God says, look, I want the men to come and fall down before me. I want them to come often. Three times a year. I want them to make this effort to come before me. And this is why we put such effort on discipling here, and particularly men. And yes, we have a lot of women's discipleship going on. Praise the Lord, they're very active, and, and women will study easy. But men, we get so caught up in our jobs and our making of money and providing, and we feel such a weight to say, man, I have to provide for my family, and we forget to be discipled. And then our hearts get hardened towards the things of the Lord. And he says, get the men in front of me. I think that's great truth. Men, are you in a Bible study? Are you in a discipleship group? Are you in a soul care group? Are you uh, ready to go to DTP this next fall as that gets fired back up? I mean, are you ready to be discipled? Come, present yourself before the Lord. Verse 24, for I will drive out the nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year and appear before the Lord your God. This is an interesting verse, but notice he says, I'm going to drive out your enemies. I'm going to mark out your boundaries. And you'll see that as we get further in De Deuteronomy. He gives these perfect boundaries of where they're supposed to go. Joshua goes in and gets most of that land. But then notice the accountability before God develops a man's character. He says, if you get before me, you will not worry about your boundary lines. Men who love the Lord don't take from their neighbors. <laughs> Men who don't love the Lord move boundary lines. And the Bible is very clear about moving a boundary line. Where's your fence? Where did, the, where did the county put your fence? It needs to be on that line. <laughs> God's serious about those things. But you go, well, how do you do it? Well, that's a character of a heart. Somebody would move a fence over, move a boundary marker. That shows their heart. And so it's get them before me and you won't worry about these things. Come before me. Men who are before God don't cheat and steal and lie and do deceitful things. Verse 25 and 26. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with unleavened bread, nor in the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left until the morning. You shall bring the very first, of the, uh, first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Well, yeast was in, uh, particularly uh, represented sin during Passover, right? They were to sweep out their houses that started in Egypt and, and was supposed to be celebrated the same way. And so it represented sin. And so when those blood sacrifices came, they came with unleavened bread. There were grain offerings and so forth. And there was to be no leaven in that. It was a reminder to sweep sin out of your life. And then when you celebrate this great Passover, remember the lamb that sacrificed for you. Don't leave anything to the morning. This is a completed deal. Eat it all. Don't let it go till morning. In fact, if you can't finish it, burn it outside the camp. And then um, notice <laughs> he throws in, in the end of verse 26, you shall not boil a, go a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know how many times I've been asked about this passage. People are reading their Bible and they mark it. Pastor, I've got to ask you a question. I'm like, okay, this will be good. 
Why, is it, why can't we boil our baby goats in their mom's milk? Well, because it's terrible. <laughs> but mostly, mostly because it was a, a pagan ritual. And the Canaanites were known for this. And it was, it was just against God's law because you were acting like the pagans. And it's just gross. <laughs> and this is where the Jews formed uh, another tradition um, that came along with us. It wasn't a law. It became a dietary law that they wouldn't eat meat and dairy products together because of this. But really, God's trying to keep them away from acting like the world. And to us, we don't think that's a big deal, but maybe there, you can think of a million things that we probably shouldn't be doing that the world does. How about getting all wound up about politics? Acting like a bunch of crazy Christians who don't know there's a God. I mean, there's certain things we just got to let go and say, that's not of us. I, I, you know, I've got to let that go. I can't be so hurt and so wound up that elections and things don't go that way. Certainly pray, vote, do your best to, to help where we can to steer a nation towards God. But boy, we can, lose, we can lose it all over this stuff, right? Verse 27, then the Lord said to Moses, write these things down for in accordance to these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. We'll have to stop right there, but what he's doing, and we'll come back to this next week, he's, he's ratifying this covenant. Write it down. Any covenant that a king in the ancient world would have made would have been written down. Of course, he's writing these on tablets. Moses is probably writing further information down. God probably gave him a recognition of what he had done. Remember, he, the first time he got down, he was never able to share with them what God had designed for the tabernacle. Because they were in sin and he had to deal with that situation. So he's getting all this information on those next 40 days and 40 nights up there. And he's going to write this down. And it, and it shows that the, the canon of God is important. And this kind of launches the Pentateuch out. That these things were to be written down. And it ratifies that this is the way God wants his relationship with his people. And again, this is a lot of the law that we're talking about. And we're not, no longer under the law. We're under grace. But did I make it practical? I mean, you can see there's very practical things that we find in the New Testament of a lot of this stuff. Let the world go. Let the world go. Be in it. Be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ in the world. But we're not of it. We're not of it. And we got to battle that, don't we? Always that kind of pull on us. Now, let's pray. Father, thanks for this time together in the Word. We've been enjoying the study, Lord. There's so much to learn here. You have not changed, God. You are God of holiness. You're God of loving kindness. But you are also a God that's just and you're a jealous God, and you're perfect in your jealousy. You want our relationship with you pure. And so I pray tonight all of us have sensed some things in our life that we need to address. Things that are not of you. Things we maybe got accustomed to that aren't pure. You said for us to think on things that are pure, which right and honorable and so forth, Lord. And so I pray that each one of us would search our hearts and our minds and Find that root of impurity. Where is that coming from? Lord, expose those things to us so we can stamp them out and by your grace and by your Spirit's help and so we can have more joy with you and understand your will for our lives and what you have and keep those things out that blind us to the truth, Lord. Lord, thanks for a church that loves the word. We pray that if it be your will, you would 
Add to our numbers and let us reach more people both here and abroad, Lord, that need the word of God. May we be examples of loving, kind people, people who have submitted to the word of God. Christ is the center of all we do, Lord. Lord, if it be your will, use us for your glory, Lord. Thank you for each and every one that's here. In Jesus' name, amen.